0: Forward Guidance is brought to you by VanEck, a global leader in asset management since 1955. You'll be hearing more about VanEck ETFs later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. Happy to welcome to Forward Guidance, Danny Diane, former macro hedge fund manager and macro investor with a specialty in uh, volatility. But we're going to be talking a lot of macro today Danny, welcome to Forward Guidance. What's your macro view right now? What's, what's keeping you up at night?
1: First of all, thanks for having me, Jack. I love the diversity of guests you have on here. So I'm glad to hopefully add a unique voice here. When I look at the balance of risks, I see different outcomes possible and how I'm looking at it is, there's a left tail risk and there's a right tail risk. And the left tail risk is, the one that's commonly out there, rates are too high. They haven't been this high in decades. Or real rates are too high as a result of inflation coming down. We need to cut rates to avoid a hypothetical recession that people see. I really don't see this as a material risk, as most people do. And I can't say that there's no probability of a recession. That can come from anything, right? It could come from the reasons I just mentioned. It could come from some idiosyncratic event or something we didn't think about, you know, the pandemic or nine eleven. God forbid. You know, these things happen so where I would put recession probability is roughly the same as it always is. One out of every seven years, we have a recession, 15% probability, give or take there. I think people are too focused on it. And part of the reason why I think people are too focused on it is we have a lot of policy room, right? Coming into the 2020 recession, policy rates were 175. They're 5% If We did have that recession, and it happened. The Fed could knock out five straight 50 bip cuts. They don't have to tell you it's coming. They don't have to warn you. They can announce them on a Sunday evening. They could knock that out, and we'd still have rates higher than we had going into COVID, and they would be able to respond and lessen what I think would come from that garden variety recession. The right-tail risk is far more terrifying, but I want to focus a little bit more on the left-tail risk. The left tail risk that everyone talks about, the people who are talking about it, I don't see that them behaving as if a recession truly is imminent. I don't want to pick on anyone, but your most recent guest, Citrini, is someone I'm a huge fan of. Okay. And he has nailed these themes of AI, the Ozempic stuff, not only got the bottom right, but could have could have left these themes along the way. He's stuck with it. He's made it and he was saying and i'm only using him not again not to pick on him cuz i am a fan and i follow him you know closely but he was saying recession is imminent and so i'm buying bonds and that's a common view no i i
0: think he's saying he's worried about that as a threat i think
1: okay he's worried about it as a threat and so bonds is a hedge for this okay sure but if you think a recession is is something that you're seriously worried about and you've nailed these stocks that you've been in these are the highest beta stocks in the world. And these are the most richly valued stocks in the world. And so I don't think that if you really think that there's a material or risk of a recession right around the corner, that you're going to be in these stocks anymore, especially having successfully nailed them. And what will happen is anyone who's been through a recession knows no matter what kind of recession is, these companies will go down 30, 50%. No one wants to give up a third of their gains or whatever that is and you'll have a shopping list and 30, 50% down lower, I'll buy them again. That's that's what I would expect behavior to be from the equity market investors in general, if they think a recession is a material risk, right? Equity
0: allocations are very high. I see what you're saying, Danny, that a lot of people talk a recession game, but when you look at their portfolio, they own a lot of stocks. In other words, if people were really worried about a recession, bond yields would be lower and the stock market wouldn't be at all time highs. We are S and P five hundred is over five thousand today. Pretty pretty remarkable bull market we are in right now. Okay, so that you think the left tail risk number one, you're not as worried about as the narrative, and you actually say a lot of people aren't as worried as they would you know say say it publicly. That's that's interesting. In, in other words, the positioning is a lot more is a lot less bearish than the narrative. I, I get that. Okay, what's the right tail risk that keeps you up at night?
1: The right tail risk is you know we've had. Two economic reaccelerations in the last 12 months. Okay, we had coming into 2023, due to the easing and conditions that we had at the end of 22, we had a major reacceleration, 30k jobs at the beginning of the year. Now, SVB, in a way, we, I'm going to use quotation marks, we got lucky that that didn't lead to an overheating economy because of SVB. Obviously, it wasn't lucky, it was a bad thing that happened. But that moderated that reacceleration, And then out of SBB, once the Fed clipped the worst possible outcome of it, the liquidity situation, and turned it into a slow-moving solvency issue, we had very low bond yields, we had high asset prices, and what happened is we had another re-acceleration. And, the, and I think we got lucky with this one as well, in that the Fed wasn't really hawkish in this period. In fact, it was the term premium tantrum which I should totally copyright that term. I've been calling it that for a while. But the, the term premium tantrum that we had is what moderated activity and prevented overheating economy. And now we're at potentially the third reacceleration to the easing we had at the end of last year. So let me just paint the scenario for you. Imagine we get a repeat of Q3, but we don't get tight financial conditions as a result of it because the Fed has opened the door to cuts. And the Fed seems intent to cut at some point, and everybody in the world is calling for them to cut. The m- people are drunk over these cuts. And so, uh, <laughs> it, when imagine we don't get tight conditions, well, the concern is that it'll lead to an overheating economy. And what's the response to that outcome? Okay. Let's just work through this. If we get a second wave, the first wave was a shock. The second wave is where people say, oh shit. This is not going away. And it gets embedded in psychology. The Fed will have to act on that. I'm not saying this is my base case, right? I'm saying that this is a risk scenario. And if we get an overheating economy, the Fed has to react. So what do they do? They've opened the door to cuts. And as we saw last year, your, your guest, Dean Kernut who I know very well, done on recently, and he were ta- he was saying they didn't deliver the cuts that were priced last year. That didn't Dent the economy and it didn't dent the equity markets. So, in the event that they just don't deliver cuts, I don't see that as necessarily tightening conditions. The market will always see cuts down the road. They've opened the door to it, and and, and that door has been is is wide open. Okay, and so they also know that any weakness we get, they're going to respond by cutting rates. The Fed would actually have to respond by bringing hikes back onto the table. Like an economist last night is calling for the RBNZ in New Zealand, to potentially hike. I don't know if that's realistic or not, but imagine the Fed brings hikes back into the table. Well, then Z4 pricing, which still has five cuts, price. Where interest rates will be by December 2024, right. end of this year. Yeah. And we're still pricing about five cuts on the, on the mean of, of those outcomes that's priced into the market. Now, imagine the Fed brings hikes back into the table. We will get something like a 200 basis point move higher in rates in a very short period of time. This will abruptly tighten conditions. The markets will tank, okay? And then you have other central banks like the Bank of Canada, ECB, and all them that they have a justifiable reason to cut, if you ask me. They haven't had strong growth. The dollar will go absolutely parabolic. It will suck liquidity out of the system. In this scenario, we will have a 10 times more vicious recession than we would have from the one that's being put out there in the narrative, which still could happen. I could be wrong about it. It could happen. But the recession in the right tail scenario is far, far, far more vicious. Imagine the Fed hikes to 7%. I mean, that's another 150 bps. If, if they have to, is that the outcome I'm positioning for? No. But I think it's the outcome that if I were the central bank, if I were the Fed, I would be worried about this outcome far more than I would be worried about preemptively cutting to prevent hypothetical weakness, which we're not seeing any economic agent, whether it's investors, consumers, or corporates, preparing for or behaving as if it's on the horizon. I don't believe rates are restrictive now. And so I think they're
0: potentially making a mistake. Thanks for that. So you think that the US economy, again, just speaking about the US, was reaccelerating and as was at the risk of overheating, but it, there were two temporary tightening of financial conditions last year that helped the U, the US economy just slow it down just a little bit so it didn't overheat. Number one, the collapse of SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, in March of, of 2023 20, uh, and, and you know, a few subsequent bank failures. And then the I like the, the term premium tantrum of October last year where the long-term bond yields rose significantly. So those two Financial conditions were tightening. Financial conditions were sufficient to make sure that the economy didn't overheat. So I want to know if the economy is so goddamn strong, basically, which is what your outlook is. What is the risk of an over tightening? If if seven percent is necessary to contain inflation, why can't the economy handle seven percent? Well,
1: I don't know what the number would be if they have an overheating. Again, it's a risk scenario. It's not my base case. I'm not calling for seven percent rates. But if the, right now, in my base case, I'll just put it out there. They should do nothing. The economy is doing really well. We have inflation mostly under control. I think it's a little stronger than the three to six month moving averages people kind of referred to. I think it's closer to 3%, but it's overall contained. It's not the worst case of it. We have 6% plus nominal GDP. It's very healthy. In my opinion, they should do nothing. The risk is that they prematurely ease. The economy overheats. And they have to take it to a level of rates that breaks things. And it will severely break things. Whoever thinks a recession is imminent at 5% is going to obviously think at 7 7 7.5%. It's going to be far worse. And so I don't know what level that would be. But we really need to avoid this scenario. That's where I would get at is when I look at restrictive, whether we are restrictive, okay, because the Fed uses this term a lot. And the way they're looking at it is, Fed funds rate minus neutral rate, which they still have at two and a half percent. I don't agree, but neutral rate two and a half percent. We are 300 bips restrictive. That is too high, and so things bad things would happen if we stay up here. There's a lot of other ways that are tried and tested, uh, tried and tested over many decades that we can use to measure restrictiveness. Okay, so number one, if you look at historically. It's not just the Fed funds rate that you need to get over inflation. It's typically the market traded rates, which are far more important for the economy. Five-year yields, 10-year yields. That's where car loans happen. That's where mortgages have a seven-year duration. That's where consumer loans are typically you know, going to be. Credit markets where companies borrow is five to 10-year horizon typically. That's where activity in the economy happens. Okay, You go back to the peak in 2007 when we had a five-plus percent. Fed funds, well, actually, the tenure was five and a quarter, okay, and we had a lot more household vulnerabilities on balance sheets, and also banks had a lot of leverage and so on and so forth two thousand dot com bubble when we had policy rates at kind of five and change, the tenure was six seventy five okay so now we have the tenure at four eighteen right now, give or take, and that is far less restrictive than it used to be, so in the end of October. When we had every part of the bond curve over 5%, core inflation by CPI, core CPI is about 4% at the time, we were restrictive. We were, how restrictive remains to be seen, but we were restrictive, although we only stayed there for two weeks. So we didn't stay there for long to really impact the economy much. If you chart 10-year versus core inflation, you typically have to get it above that level for a material amount of time, going back decades. To tip the economy over into recession. Another way of looking at it is the 10 year relative to nominal GDP. Okay. Typically you need to get the 10 year over nominal GDP. We have the 10 year 180 basis points below nominal GDP right now. And so by the test
0: of time, we are not restrictive. So nominal GDP is at six percent, 10 years at 4.2%. So nominal GDP is still above. That's right, by a substantial margin, right? So the Fed funds doesn't matter, really. The Fed, when they hike rates or cut
1: rates, it's really to impact other rates in the market. It's not generally the Fed funds rate because who transacts there? The big banks pay five basis points for deposits. Right? Floating rate loans, right? Like so sure. far. But there's not, that is not the majority of economic activity, unfortunately. So the Fed funds rate is the least impactful rate, I would say, in the economy. I chose the equity investor angle to say investors are not preparing for a recession, but let's look at the household sector, okay? When we had rates come sharply down since November, and every single week almost since then, we've had mortgage purchase applications go up. I'm not saying it's a gangbuster housing market, but on the margin, it has been an increase in household uh, housing activity. The household savings rate is at multi-decade lows. You're not seeing consumers say, let me forego consumption for savings. And you get paid to save now, right? Ask your next 10 guests, you know, when they come on, are you changing your behavior? You know, did you go out three times a week and now you're going out once every two weeks? Are you canceling vacations that you were planning? Are you canceling big ticket items? Are you foregoing consumption for savings? I'm going to assume they're not. I've been in Florida for three weeks. Um, nobody, <laughs> this economy is booming here. And then let's go to the corporate sector. Corporate sector is the best assessment of demand in the economy, right? They set prices, they see demand in terms of revenue sales. We had the first positive earnings growth in Q3 and four the first one. And now we've accelerated in Q4 to roughly five and a half six 6% earnings growth in Q4. They had bond yields come sharply lower at the end of the year. Credit spreads tighten. And what did they do? They responded with the biggest investment grade issuance month in history: 160 billion in January, and another 30 some odd billion in the in the high yield market. So what are they telling you? They're telling you that rates down here are a gift, and our demand is stronger, and we're going to lock it in. One of the biggest risks I had for 2024 was the corporate credit maturity wall that starts at the end of 24. Moves through big, big, bigger amounts that are due to refinance in 25 and 26. And companies said, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to take care of this now. That's not all of it. But, you know, there's jumping at the chance to lock in these lower rates to finance their businesses. No one is acting like a recession is imminent. No one is acting like policy is restrictive. And the tried and tested, you know, ways I, I look at over many decades don't tell us that either.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I looked at some bond data, exactly what you're talking about, the 30 billion in high yield issuance in January, I think was the highest since November 2021, which was the last good month before all this macro chaos started. And yeah, that tells you something like the the credit markets kind of froze up, I believe in November of 2018, leading to the uh, Powell pivot, credit markets are wide open, you can drive a, a truck through them, CLO markets are functioning. I mean, private credit is just churning out loans, that could end badly. I, I don't know. i have going to do an interview on that that I'm excited about. But okay, so in this env- environment, is it fair to say you are in the no-landing scenario? You are the exact opposite of a recessionista. You're not a soft-landing gu- guy. You're a, you're a no-landing guy. And in this environment where the economy overheats, nominal growth is very high, inflation reaccelerates. accelerates is that one where stocks outperform bonds? Is that fair to say? And so- What's your outlooks on stocks versus bonds, and then stocks and bonds and assets on a general basis? So first of all, these no landing, soft landing labels, I don't buy into this. I'm with you. I
1: agree. They're bullshit. I think they box you into a line of thinking that you can't get out of. And in my opinion, the economy is path dependent. If rates jump to 7% tomorrow, 10-year yields, you know, whatever we said today doesn't matter, right? So um, you know, I'm in the camp that the economy is in a really good place. I think the Fed has a few lessons they need to learn, which we can talk about in a second, that they need to study the economy and take their time. There's no rush to do anything. And that only if they cut, will we most likely have an overheating economy that leads to a second wave. Where we are now, I think we're in a wonderful spot. So to go to the asset class picture, to me, bond yields are way too low. I'm happy to be short bond. You know, I I obviously am a trader. I don't just put on positions for years to come. But you know, at the end of December, seeing what we had, 360, 10-year-old, I was happy to trade that. I've been trade fading rallies in the bond market consistently. It's been just a strong theme. I'm short every part of the curve. I'm not trying to be cute and trying to play curve. I think yeah. you know the bond market is just way too rich. With equities, I can make a case that we keep we keep going higher or that we keep go or that we have a correction simply because we're we've gone up twenty. in three months, we're overbought, everyone is bullish. I could see a correction. But my view really with equities is if they do cut and overheat the economy, equities will melt up to something that no one's really prepared for, 5,500, 6,000 level. Could equities digest higher bond yields poorly on the way up? It's possible that happens too. So my conviction on the next move is very low. I would say they should outperform bonds. My preference is by vol. I'm a vol trader. And I look at equity vol at, you know, 11 on the S&P, you know, give or take for one month vol. That is way too low. Your break even is 3% in either direction. We just moved, like I said, 21% in three months. I'm of the view that the next move, we're not going to stay here at the all-time high at 5,000. We're either going to melt up in the overheat scenario, or we're going to have a correction That is, you know, five to 10%. And I'm happy to say that I'll put on a vol trade where if nothing happens, I know what I'm going to lose. If we move in either direction, I'm going to make money. If implied vol goes up, because there's some event that I didn't foresee, I'll make money. I make money in all three situations other than let's just sit here.
0: So that's how I look at equities right now, in particular in the U.S., some form of being long, a straddle or a strangle, you just want it to move, whether it moves up a lot or moves down a lot, that's how you make money.
1: Yeah, I, I, it's not as simple as a straddle. It's a little more complex than that. And I could get into the construction. The way it'll behave in the next month, basically, I have three-month option structures on. The way that it'll behave in the next month is like a long straddle. It's, you could basically call it a long straddle. Without actually paying for it, I collect premium. So what I'm doing is, you know, one by two call spreads that are, I'm buying the two leg and I'm selling at the money vol buying, let's say 25 delta, you know, uh, two 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 times. I collect premium for the most part on these trades. So if the market falls apart, I, I recoup that premium. If the market goes sharply higher, I end up picking up a lot of delta, and get longer the market as it goes. And I make a lot of money. What I don't like is in the next month, it just sits here. Now, like I said, these are three month structures. I hold it for a month. After a month, the the nature of these trades gets really ugly. Like the scenarios of how it could play. So it trades like a one month straddle now. A month from now, it'll trade entirely differently and I'll get out of this trade and reset it. But that's how I'm
0: looking at Like gold did. Bitcoin is establishing itself as a macro asset that potentially helps hedge against the government devaluation of your money. Finally, you can easily access Bitcoin in a low-cost ETF with the VanEck Bitcoin Trust, ticker HODL. Search the ticker HODL in your brokerage app today. Visit vanneck.com slash HODLFG to learn more. That's vanneck.com slash HODLFG. Now the disclosures. Investing involves risk and you could lose money on an investment in the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, also known as the Trust or HODL. The value of Bitcoin and therefore the value of the trust shares could decline rapidly, including to zero. You could lose your entire principal investment. For a more complete discussion of the risk factors relative to the trust, carefully read the prospectus link below. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Got it. So it's, it's an advanced trade that sounds like you have to be a pretty sophisticated player to put on and more you have to be more sophisticated to manage it than put on. That's my experience with options is that managing is uh, is tougher than, than putting it on. Okay, so you think equities could correct if interest rates go up. They could melt up if interest rates go down. That's interesting. Okay. So tell me about what why is the US economy so strong? Do you perceive? And I guess I could throw a a few like recessionista arguments at you, which I think they, you know, might not be convincing for there to be a recession, but they could be convincing that there is going to be a slowdown that would effectuate a soft landing. So let's see. So the the labor market is slowing. Wages are still growing very quickly, but the rate of declines are going down. Job availabilities are still very high, but they are going down. Jobs added per month are very high still, but they are going down. Uh, the, The theme is still high. The rate of change is still high, but the rate of change itself is going down at a time when inflation itself is going down. Why would the Federal Reserve not cut if interest rates, I'm just going to take from uh, Nick Timoros from the Wall Street Journal, that if three-month annualized core PCE is 1.5% annualized, so below the Fed's target, and interest rates are at the short-term overnight rate is at 5.38%, wouldn't that suggest that real interest rates are close to 4%? Way, way, way too high. All of, you know, all those arguments and more, what is sort of your rebuttal to those arguments either for recession outright or that there's going to be a slowdown that will slow down nominal growth and cause a soft landing? Sure. I mean, first of all, as I said
1: earlier, the Fed funds rate doesn't matter. It's the 10-year rate that matters. And so we could say five and a half Fed funds, but the 10-year rate is 420, 418. And so you have to compare that to whatever metric you're looking at. So I think there, you know, that's the wrong argument to make. Second of all, Let's not develop hypothetical reasons for the economy to weaken, right? Let's let the economy tell us that it's restrictive. We went through all the different agents of the economy. They're not behaving that way. Nominal GDP is 6%. What are you trying to accomplish by cutting rates? So, okay, you're going to cut rates and we have 2% year over year loan growth. We're actually growing really strongly from organic income growth and organic spending and investments from the corporate sector at 6% nominal GDP. Okay, let's actually see that why would we incentivize loan growth to go back up to 10% when actually money velocity is like 16% higher than it was in November 2021. What that tells you is you incentivize the, 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 the loan, you know the lending market to increase, credit growth to increase. That's how you get inflation. And, and so that seems really, really risky at 6% nominal GDP. I'll go back to the job market. You know, the, the the other argument you mentioned there, sure, it's slowing. I mean, there's a limited amount of workers in the economy, number one. Number two, that argument kind of flipped on its head, I think a week ago, right? Where we had substantial downward revisions for about nine months in a row in the job market. Those got revised up. Now, they didn't eliminate the downward revisions, but they got revised up. The December print, was revised up by over 100,000 jobs. The job number we got was also over 300,000 jobs. So all these little moving averages that people love to throw out to say that we're really slowing, we are nowhere near the replacement rate of jobs in the economy, which is 50 to 80,000 a month. Why don't we see one month where we approach the replacement rate of job creation, still growing jobs, but approaching it before we even talk about rate cuts? Right. Why talk about rate cuts based on hypothetical arguments? The economy will tell us that we're restrictive. It's not telling us we're restrictive. And these hypothetical arguments based on the neutral rate, I will give you my neutral rate when we talk about demographics, you know, estimate, but it's an estimate. It's not measurable. It's, it's, it's It's an art, not a science to some degree. I don't think that there's any need to cut rates when the economy is showing this strong growth. If I were the Fed, and Nick Timmeros, I actually tweeted at him, here are some tough questions to ask the Fed that I think need to be asked. Why is the economy so resilient, right? You have to start asking this question as if you're, if you're the Fed. And if the economy is this resilient, maybe you need to go back to your books and look at the neutral rate and say, maybe we're wrong that it's still two and a half percent. The Fed themselves has two models for the neutral rate. Okay. One of them is the Williams model, which says it hasn't changed. It's still 2.5%. The other one is the Lubick model, which is from the Richmond Fed Research Department, and they have it at 4.2%. Ironically, before the full ramifications of the GFC were clear to everyone, it, the Fed themselves estimated it at 4.1%. So maybe the post-global financial crisis economy is the anomaly and not the norm for the US economy. We had so many factors there that were household deleveraging because of the housing market blowing up, substantial amounts of corporate and household bankruptcies. We had the banking sector was forced to delever many times over due to regulation change due to their part in the GFC. You actually had after the TARP program to bail out the banks, which was very unpopular, you had a mini version of austerity in the US and Europe. Uh, Europe had more, but you had a mini version of austerity in terms of no appetite for fiscal spending. It didn't last long. It didn't last long, but you know that was the case then. And you had what everyone knows, deflationary demographics. Maybe that was the anomaly and not the norm. And if you make a mistake of cutting based on thinking we're still in that economy when we're four years into a new economy and it hasn't is shown to be completely different,
0: You might make a major mistake. So the the neutral rate is, my my definition of the neutral rate is, what is a rate that is neither stimulative nor restrictive for the economy? So if the economy is at perfect equilibrium, what would be the rate to keep it at equilibrium? I think right now that rate, according to the Federal Reserve, is 2.5%. And that 2.5% is the nominal rate. So if the Fed has its target of 2% inflation, the real neutral rate would be half a percent. So okay, so you say that you should forget the Fed funds, focus on the tenure. Okay, tenure is at four point two percent. The three month annualized core PCE as is at one point five percent annualized. That's a generous metric. Corey, you you could choose a metric that's much higher, probably year over year CPI. Yeah, Jack, let let me just jump in. What was the
1: three month annualized PCE in you know the middle of twenty twenty two? Like twelve percent? We didn't set policy based on the three month annualized. It's a nonsense argument. You said it on the annual, you know, the, the the economy ebbs and flows over the course of a year. You don't nitpick the data to get you the answer you want. You choose annual, annualized inflation, you know, 12-month running is a far better way. And I would also say, you know, sure, PCE has been has been well-contained. Core PCE has been well-contained over the you know time period. I think we should thank the Fed for tightening policy as they did in response. I think we've gotten lucky in certain respects with supply-side improvements. And we'll see how sustainable those are. Core CPI is materially higher. And I think there's a message in that divergence in that maybe take an average of the two or, or something along those lines. I think when you have a divergence, something to look at. But again, the economy will tell us if it's restrictive and it's 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 not. So let's just say the Lubick model is not the right model of a neutral rate of 4.2 that they have, Right. It seems reasonable that it's higher than two and a half. And I think the Fed should simply take their time. They have the millions of PhD uh, you know, economists on their staff and really get to work and figure this out. The thing that I think they're missing is that demographics have changed substantially. And that's where I come out and have been saying for years now, the neutral rate is probably much higher than it was last cycle. There's two other lessons for the Fed. I think that they should be spending time learning now, you know, before we jump into demographics, one is if you go back to the prior cycle, financial conditions tended to be tighter than they wanted at almost all times. Okay. So the equity market, just as a barometer responded negatively to almost anything that happened in 2012, you had the Eurozone crisis in 2013, we had the taper tantrum, you know, we had the Swiss net central bank, unpeg their currency In 2015, we had China devalue their currency. In 2016, we had the energy market oil collapse. In every one of these situations, trade wars in 2018, every single one of these situations, the equity market reacted negatively. And financial conditions were tighter than the Fed wanted, which is why they kept pumping liquidity into the system. Now, let's look at this economy. The financial conditions have tended to be easier than that has been the prevailing situation. We'll get tightening for some period of time, but then we'll get a massive easing that unwinds in an explosive manner the tightening we had, and that'll last for months on end, right? So why is it that, you know, that happens consistently in this economy? That to me is potentially another sign that we're not restrictive. And then third, why is it that when we have these financial conditions easings, the economy reaccelerates within two to three months. I have, I'm not trying to toot my own horn here, but I've literally called the month of the accelerations three straight times. And that doesn't mean that, you know, I'm a prophet.
0: Which ones were, were these, uh, Danny? And which data set are you looking at that confirm? Oh, this is an acceleration.
1: You have to look at what constitutes financial conditions using. Don't just look at one index or another, but let's just take the three accelerations. October of 22 through December of 22, bond yields, 10 year yields moved about 100 basis points lower. Equities had moved up sharply, and the dollar depreciated in a very big way. Like the euro was 95 cents, and the dollar, as an example, went to 115 within a short period of time. Okay, so when you had all of these different uh, metrics of financial conditions easing, what ends up happening is equities going higher makes people wealthier. The dollar weakening makes corporate revenues a little bit more flattering. The yields moving lower turns the mortgage market to reaccelerate, the housing market to reaccelerate. Activity picks up there. So in that period in October of 22, November of 22, I said by January, February, we will reaccelerate. We ended up getting smacked with a 500K payroll print. And then we got another one, which is 330K or something in that ballpark over the next two months before SVB happened. And then SVB initially started out as a liquidity crisis. The Fed clipped that tail by creating their facility. And what that facility did effectively was say, you know, liquidity is solved, but it comes at a cost, right? So now it's a solvency issue is... It economical for me to do lending and business or buy securities as a bank, given my funding costs. These are slow moving stories. And bond yields were still pricing 150 bips of cuts by April and May. Mm -hmm. And equities had already recovered and the Mm -hmm. dollar was weaker. And so I said, by June, we will have a reaccelerating economy. And lo and behold, Q3 was an 8% plus nominal GDP quarter. And this time around, in November, we had the biggest financial conditions easing, again, all three components in 40 years. And what did we start to see in December? Housing activity started to pick up a little bit as mortgage rates have come down. And I said, by January data, which we get in February, we will reaccelerate." And lo and behold, you know we're at the early days of it. I, I think there could be more to go, but you know we're at the early days of it. so the Fed should be studying this and saying they initially were very focused on financial conditions when they were tightening. As somewhere along the way, they kind of dropped this as a focus. And they said financial conditions were very tight at the end of October. They said that. They pushed back on that tightening. They didn't even understand the term premium stuff that, you know, for the most part. And then when financial conditions eased by the December FOMC, they said, oh, don't worry about it. You know? So- what happens is the markets take their cue from the Fed and the markets have gone absolutely haywire. You know, we have animal spirits. They they should be studying this because they haven't delivered rate cuts yet. The mere mention of rate cuts caused animal spirits all over the the financial system. And then guns. they're And then the economy picks up again. And so I think these are the three things they should be studying. They should do absolutely nothing. And I think when they if they study it, they're far smarter than me. They will come to the conclusion that as far as things stand today, which it could change, as far as things stand today, there's really no basis to cut rates anytime soon.
0: Okay. So that that sounds like a con- convincing case. Thanks for for laying that out. I want to ask a few things of if trends if, about trends that continue, such as the the fall in core PCE, the fall in the rate of nominal growth, if those things continue, they are no, nowhere near a you know crisis level or even a bad level now. In fact, they are robust, I would say. But if they continue, we would get a, a a slowdown. And the other thing I would say is credit credit because of a variety of reasons. In 2021, delinquencies were at an all time low for I think every Ask auto, mortgage, credit card, student, lo- everything, uh, helocs, I think too. But they've been rising, and they're so they're still they're still they're not at low levels. For a while, they were rising from absurdly low levels, and they were still yeah. at low levels. Now they're at I'd say medium levels for mortgages. And they're still low. normal levels. I would say normal levels. Yeah, levels. yeah, yeah, normalization. I, I support the term normalization uh, about what's going on in credit. But if those trends continue, we would be approaching a say a worrisome level, and if. That continued, it would then enter a crisis level. And again, rate of, as I pointed out on Twitter, I think rate of change data and an overfocus on rate of change data has led macro investors astray during the cycle. For example, you know, 13 oh, percent consumption spending down to eight percent. That fall by five percent in a back test makes it look like there's a recession, but it wasn't. Eight percent growth is still really hot. So, and I admit that over reliance on rate of change data has led macro investors astray. That being said, like the rate of change of delinquencies is for autos and credit cards similar to 2007, 2008. Mortgages, of course, it's nowhere close. But there are you know, a few more data points like this that I would say challenge that narrative you put about. What, what, what would your response to that be? I think you're spot on in that if these trends continue, then
1: that would be evidence that the economy is telling us that they're restrictive. And that would be what I've been saying all along is let's see it play out. Let's not try, try to preempt based on hypotheticals. So I don't think those are problematic levels right now. And, and it has to be said, you know, the economy is an enormous monolith that moves very slowly and has so many moving parts to it. Not all parts of the economy do well at all times. You know, we do have pockets of weakness. It's not rosy, not everyone's having a party, you know, it's not that, okay? But overall, it's strong. If you see nominal GDP come down, if inflation comes down, but we get a corresponding move up in real GDP and nominal stays the same, then there's something else going on that they need to be studying, which is, again, productivity maybe is substantially higher or supply side is stronger than they thought. They need to rethink things. There's, there's a lesson there that needs to be made. But if inflation keeps going down and nominal GDP goes down with it, that's an evidence that we're restrictive, and I would myself say, you know, let's start getting ready for rate cuts and things like that. like cautiously, not seven rate cuts or anything like that, but cautiously, let's start thinking about it. The economy will tell us. and so I'm not in disagreement with that that narrative. It's just that. We're not seeing in aggregate anything that tells us we should be cutting rates now. And if anything, some of the metrics on inflation look to have inflected higher. Like like what? You know, ISM services paid last week came out with a substantial jump to 64. That's pretty concerning. The NFIB, the small business survey of companies saying the wage plans seems to have inflected higher. So... There's a number of things that could say that doesn't mean it's problematic yet. It's not. Um, I think inflation is okay here, but I don't think they should hike in response to that either. Right. I think they should be just where we are. But these are things that say that maybe the uh, the inflation story that we've had has been primarily goods deflation while services inflation has been pretty sticky you know there's some indicating there's some signs that the goods sector is improving manufacturing is potentially improving a little bit not growing strongly but if that goods deflation becomes somewhat inflationary again positive with sticky services inflation then i think we settle closer to 3% than the 2 that has been prevalent prevalent in the 3 and 6 month moving averages of what we had so these are things to pay attention to on both directions though does the, the the commercial real estate market implode? You know, does the, do those credit card delinquencies go up to problematic levels? Do, you know, or on the other side, does inflation pick up? Does GDP pick up? You know, does activity pick up? I think there's two sided risks from, from the standpoint. And I actually think Powell mentioned we're in balance. And so if he's saying we're in balance, it, that is a way for policymakers to say there's risk to both sides. You now, it seems they're more focused on the left tail. But in my opinion,
0: just based on you know what I said earlier, I think the right tail is far scarier. That's the one that keeps me up at night. You're worried about the right tail, the reacceleration in economic growth. Of course, it kind of sounds like a good problem to have, but it would come with the reacceleration in inflation. So, yeah, I would say, Danny, the thing that worries me about the fact that the Fed says the risks are now balanced, you know, it was saying the risks are balanced to the upside, meaning the risks is inflation, not recession. Now it's saying the risks are balanced. But, you know, that's the, the Federal Reserve never goes from the saying the risks are only on the right side to the right They have to, you know, if, if they're on 4th Street. They don't just jump to 1st Street. They go to 3rd Street first and then 2nd then Street.
1: I, I would kind of respond to that and say, when you're hiking rates, you need to telegraph this to the market because what you don't want is the scenario I mentioned earlier. You Rates shoot up super rapidly and you get an abrupt tightening in conditions that actually impairs your ability to conduct policy. So it's very important for them to telegraph rate hikes. They don't need to telegraph rate cuts. They can come in on a Sunday night and cut by 50 bips if they want to. They, don't, they can walk into a meeting where it's priced zero and cut 25 bips or 50 bips. And the economy will cheer it. The markets will cheer it just the same. The problem actually is if you telegraph rate cuts, the market hears you that the, the barn door is open and it'll never be closed. And the markets have been waiting for rate cuts this whole cycle. Even when they were cutting seventy-five bit, uh, sorry, hiking seventy-five bit increments, the markets were always saying, well, "Yeah, but rate cuts are right around the corner." You know, rate cuts are right around the corner. Oh, but now they'll do another seventy-five. Don't worry, they're just right around the corner. We won't stay here. They'll cut rates. And so, telegraphing it to me has backfired on them. And and that's where I think that they were at perfect levels on October thirty first. If they had stayed there, I think the economy would have weakened over time if we had stayed there three to six months, which we stayed two weeks. But if we stayed there three to six months, I think we would have seen some weakening. It was a level of restrictiveness that, again, you could go back decades and say it was was close. And I think in that context, it then would have been appropriate to start talking about rate cuts now. But because of what they did by just mere mention of rate cuts and bringing animal spirits out, Now,
0: they're in a very bad spot, if you ask me, in terms of the risk of the two sides. Sorry to interrupt. Just want to tell you about BlockWorks' upcoming crypto symposium in London, the Digital Asset Summit, which is running from March 18th to March 20th. Everyone in crypto is going to be there, not just the experts and policymakers, but the real industry leaders writing the checks. Over $800 billion in assets is going to be represented. Anyone who's anyone in crypto is going to be there. So if you're into crypto and you haven't bought your ticket yet, The time is now to get your ticket. I would not wait any longer. We've got some exciting guests on the macro side too. Julian Brigden, Michael Howell. And yes, I can confirm at last the rumors are true. Joseph Wang, the Fed guy himself, is going to be there too. I'll be hosting a panel with these macro heavyweights that you don't want to miss. So be there or be square. Click the link in the description and use code FG10 to get 10% off. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. A final question I want to ask before we talk about demographics is... Your your outlook on rates and specifically not what should the Federal Reserve do or you know if you were the head of the chair what would they do but what do you think the Federal Reserve will do like can you can you give us an outlook on I know it's past dependent on how many rate huts the Federal Reserve will actually deliver either this year or in this cutting cycle um, I gather it's it's fewer than five. But I mean, you, you gave us a little bit of color when you said you think the, some, some further point on the curve could go up 100 basis points or something like that. But could you just give us a little more detail on how bearish you are on rates? We know you're bearish, but how much?
1: I think if the economy stays at 6% nominal GDP pace, zero. If inflation does continue on its trajectory and shows a greater sign of like 2%, and the economy goes a little bit lower from 6% nominal GDP to five and a half and change, I think they'll probably deliver something like two cuts. And I think they'll be very cautious and slow to do it. I think that they're just going to see the economy as too strong to cut is my base case, but I can't rule out that they may cut in spite of everything I've said because of their reliance on a neutral rate framework that, may or may not be incorrect. And I think that they're still talking that way. So I didn't see Powell as hawkish just in the last FOMC meeting at all. You know, I haven't seen them as hawkish since you know Q3. They haven't been hawkish. At best, they were neutral. I've seen them as dovish. Him saying March is too soon doesn't mean that he's not dovish. I still think that he's still indicating cuts are coming. Almost everyone on the committee sees cuts are coming. They don't know when, and they can be patient. But to me, I think they're too dovish to the economic situation. I think they're focused more on a myopic focus on inflation, not a, enough focus on the, the economy, the growth side of things and recognizing that something has changed. This is the demographic conversation, but something has structurally changed in the economy. And I think that's what they're missing.
0: So what, what has changed with demographics? And I want to set the stage for, for our audience that when I entered the business before COVID, anytime an investor, a macro investor talks about demographics, it was almost always a reason to be bullish on rates. So interest rates would continue to go down. So the, the neutral rate is, is lower because we have an aging society. We're going to be just like Japan yada, yada, yada. Maybe you shared that view a, a decade ago. But now I want to say when you talk about demographics, you have the opposite view. You think demographics are reaccelerating. So stocks over bonds and, and bond yields will go up. Tell us why.
1: So going back to the last cycle, obviously, there were the specific cyclical elements of the GFC, okay, deleveraging everything we talked about. But you also had in in terms of demographics, the, the thing to focus on with demographics is not just the aging of the population. It's looking at the various different segments of the labor force and understanding that as you progress through your life, your savings patterns change, your consumption patterns change. Even within consumption, the things you consume changes over time. Your productivity patterns change. And ultimately, putting this all together doesn't tell you what GDP will be this year. And this is why a lot of people don't focus on it at all because they say, I can't put a trade on for this. So, uh, you know, what's the point of paying attention to it? It tells you the capacity and constraints of the economy and understanding that you can then see how are we navigating as a cyclical economy around the capacity and constraints. Mm -hmm. So going back to the last decade, you had baby boomers in their last 10 years of working work life to retirement. They had just gone through two financial crises. The dot-com bubble, which hit their portfolios. Then they recovered slowly. Then they had the 2008, which hit their portfolios. So their nest eggs were smaller than they would have liked. We had a surplus of labor from China that was in the global economy. And so what we had is very high savings rates in aggregate as the baby boomers, the biggest labor force group and the wealthiest labor force group in history, were saving a substantial amount of their income for retirement. Okay. At the same time, you also add, since they were the biggest labor force group, people in their fifties and sixties are typically not the most productive workers in the workforce. So you're very comfortable, you know, you have a high salary at this point, it's at your peak level, you're very comfortable with your job. You're not trying to work 80 hours a week. You're trying to just clock in get things done you're you might be efficient at that but you're not trying to kill yourself right except
0: Danny, for all the viewers listening, watching this right now who are that age they are incredibly productive and we're you're not talking about them you're talking about everyone not else. your viewers not yeah, your yeah. listeners
1: <laughs> but this is an aggregate okay so then you come here to this economy and as far back as 2018 the bank of international settlements put out a fantastic paper on the demographic changes that were happening not just in the US but globally and it really opened my eyes to look at and do my own analysis regressions on these various factors to see what the aggregate impact would be. So when you take the baby boomers into retirement a couple things happen. And they moved into retirement quicker this cycle than we would have projected because of covid and you know asset prices were sky high and they they felt like we could retire a little bit earlier. But I always expected the retirements to be substantial by 2023. Uh, as far back as 2018, I thought by 2023, this was going to really pick up. And so what happens is as they move into retirement, we have a number of things that change relative to the last cycle. Number one, baby boomers go from savers to dissavers. So now they have their pile of savings and they're spending it down gradually over their remaining years in retirement. And so that becomes a dissaving saving force on the economy. Secondly, They are, uh, since they're no longer in the workforce, aggregate productivity actually picks up. Most people think in retirement, consumption falls off a cliff. Like you retire, you spend 20% less than you did the year before. It's actually not the case. What ends up happening is your basket that you consume starts to change. So less nights out for dinner, less, you know, concerts, less vacations. Cars. Healthcare, Yeah, you know, frankly which is still spending, but more healthcare, more things of that nature. So you start to have all of these different factors from the baby boomers, but you also now have had millennial generation, which is now the biggest labor force generation move into their peak family formation phase. Okay. So what does that mean? It means demand for housing is pretty sticky and people buy houses Obviously, they want to be in a good job situation to buy a house, but they also buy a house based on their their family circumstance. You know, we just had a baby. I want to have a bigger backyard. I want to have a backyard. I don't want to live in a city center anymore. I want to have suburbs. So they end up having a substantial increase in durable goods spending and housing expenses and things like renovations and you know things like for the children, right? And so. That's a material change in the goods consumption of the economy. That's sticky for housing as well, which I think is a trend most people have not understood why housing has been so resilient. That's partly why they're also now hitting peak productivity in their part of their life. So Peak productivity happens typically in your low 40s your or your, your early 40s. And, you know, some of that is you're more experienced. Some of that is the circumstances of your life. You're less focused on nightlife and going out and drinking or whatever. You know, you're more focused on family life and I'm going to work hard and you're a manager role now. So you have responsibilities. All of these things in aggregate have happened. The savings rate is substantially lower for the economy. So that means less demand for fixed income. That's inflationary Two demand for durable goods, housing is sticky, that's inflationary. Three, productivity is higher and we started to see productivity increase. So these factors are exactly what we're seeing now and yet everyone's surprised by them and it's
0: only because they have looked at demographics. So I think there's two fundamental pieces of, of data sets you're talking about. Number one, you're talking about baby, baby boomers entering retirement and also entering later into retirement. And number two, you're talking about millennials getting older, start, starting families and buying houses. So that, I think that second factor the millennials, we understand, okay, family formation, that's bullish for the economy. You got to buy, you know, buy people buying a lot of houses. People got to build a lot of homes. So that means that employs a lot of people, and we have a shortage, which is not demographic based, but is
1: just coincided with that, right? So we have a shortage of housing. You
0: know, yeah, the price of wood wood is going to go up. It's it's inflationary. We get that. But explain how the baby boomers getting older, because they they are a giant generation, as as you know, is bullish for the economy. Because I think the common narrative is older people spend less, uh, and it also say I'm just looking at the personal savings rate from Fred, the St. Louis Fed. And it appears that that savings rate has been in secular decline for many years from maybe 19, late 1970s to 2006. And then it went up from 2006 to 2020. And then it spiked for various re- reasons. And now it's, it's quite low again. So just, just explain that savings argument. And then I guess the classic example is Japan, an incredibly aging society. And we did not see a boom in demand. J- Japanese retirees would like to invest in bonds not stocks generally, and they, you know, don't spend that much money, you know, economically on on a macro, if you look at the macroeconomic aggregates, that is true. Why is it going to be different in the US? And I'd also say, I know I'm throwing a lot at you. Why is a low savings rate bad for bonds and good for stocks?
1: Okay. Um, Obviously, you know, I have to caveat here. Demographics are not the end-all, be-all. They're not going to tell you everything that happens. You know, There's cyclical elements. There's all kinds of things that happen. In Japan, in particular, this is a common argument against demographics people like to to, to give me when I have these conversations. In Japan, in particular, you had a collapse in aggregate demand as a result of their blow-ups in the 90s, uh, housing inequities. We're talking substantial declines in that. And you had a situation where Companies continuously could not pass on costs to their, you know, consumers, customers, because whenever input costs would go up, they had a situation where they would eat that in margin decline. So you ended up with this self-reinforced circle that's more about the cyclical economy than demographic situation. That maybe they offset each other and it more than offset the demographics. But you had a situation where if you can't pass on those input cost increases, right? That happened to your business. You eat the margin. And then what happens is since you're eating the margin and not passing on cost increases, employees don't demand higher wages. And when they don't demand higher wages, you're not going to reinvest in your business in CapEx. So you have this virtuous circle of deflationary behavior, which by the way, is starting to change and Japan does have inflation finally.
0: Yeah. The unemployment rates like below 3%. Right.
1: And abanomics had a lot of different dynamics to it you know one was qe and and, and all those things but it was also about encouraging uh, investment from businesses and encouraging wage growth and that's actually where we're starting to see inflation is because as costs have come up this cycle in japan you're starting to get some wage demands it's nowhere near like the us and or or other economies but it's the beginning of of a circle where Cost increases, I'm going to throw that at the customers in higher prices. They're going to demand higher wages. As a result, it comes back to me and I feel like I can invest in my business instead of retaining earnings as cash and saving it. I can invest in my business, which leads to productivity increasing and then this whole circle happens all over the place. That's Japan.
0: So you're never going to hear any disagreement from me that deflation feeds on itself and that deflationary uh, spirals can exacerbate, look at the Great Depression, Japan in the 1990s, uh, companies don't have enough money to employ people, then people don't have enough money to buy things and it, it feeds on itself. But are you saying that the cause of the Japanese deflation is not, as is commonly believed, or a common contributor to the Japanese deflation is the aging demographics, but it is solely other factors such as the popping of the you know, world-renowned credit bubble of the late 1980s, bad balance sheets on banks? And if anything, are you saying that the aging demographics in Japan actually would be mildly inflationary? Is that is that what you're saying?
1: What I'm saying is if you just simply summarize it as aging population, it's, you're going to have lower growth, okay? But you should have higher inflation from that if you have the dynamics that Japan didn't have in terms of the deflationary bust from all those things that led companies to become super conservative for all this time, they're potentially breaking out of it. But I think if we look at the U S which hasn't had this situation. Okay. And we go back to your original question. If you're a baby boomer and you go into retirement and you have wealth in your housing, your house that you bought, you maybe you still live there, but you have accrued a lot of equity. You have wealth in your portfolio of equities and whatever else you own. And you have saved a substantial amount of money for retirement, your nest egg. Well, what happens in retirement is you start spending that. So you went from a saver to a dissaver. And so that is a decrease in the savings rate. So on aggregate, that is a decrease in demand for fixed income. And that becomes inflationary. And when you have the other agents of the economy, the biggest labor force be millennials, just at the same time, it's just a coincidence. It didn't have to happen this way, but it did, where they've hit a period where they are now at a huge demand for physical, tangible goods that are very expensive to make and are big ticket purchases and support many different actors in the economy.
0: That's inflationary. And it's also inflationary in terms of housing prices. So, so you're saying that the current demographic situation in the US is inflationary, not deflationary. What about the rest of the world? I mean, Europe has had an aging population and it coincided with low, low inflation, low growth, again, correlation, you know, not causation. China had a you know, huge demographic boom, but they I think just looking at the chart what's coming is a huge demographic bust in China. And I mean, you know, Wall Street Journal articles about women saying, I don't want to have any children. Um, so I, I don't know. So so I mean, the narrative is if the demographic bust in China is coming, then that would be hugely deflationary for the Chinese economy. Do you have a slightly different uh, interpretation and anything else you have on the demographics of the world? China is essentially going through a balance sheet recession and
1: a confidence crisis the way Japan did. And in my opinion, they're not handling it well. They should be really realizing the losses as soon as possible in this housing bust. And so they're going through it. Again, I want to just kind of come back to demographics for the, 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 the way the labor force changes and all this and how it impacts. It's not that demographics mean inflation has to be at a certain level. It's just that the impulse from demographics was deflationary for four decades for the global economy has turned into a positive impulse. So you have many things that affect inflation. Obviously, one of them is the Fed, you know, central banks, where do they keep policy? Do they keep it easy? Or do they keep it tight? Fiscal spending, that impacts inflation. So demographics, demographics are not the end all be all. But we've had an impulse that was negative, that became positive. Another way that you have inflationary demographics is through labor shortages. You took a huge chunk of the labor force and you said go to bed. You know, go go sit in your pajamas and don't work and you know, you're in retirement and and so we haven't had a way to replace those workers. And so we will have a structural labor shortage or labor hoarding for a decade which leads to higher wage demands than we previously had. Again, that's another way that it translates into just structurally higher inflation. This doesn't mean that we have to have 4% inflation or 3.5% inflation. It just means that people are missing that we have some sticky elements that are inflationary that used to be deflationary. And so when you look at that in the US economy, and you look at things like the extraordinarily healthy balance sheets, and you look at... Household wealth to GDP at 550% now. In the 70s, it was 350%. I'm talking the US economy. All of these things lead us to say that the economy can withstand higher rates than it did in the prior decade. And that the confluence of factors we had in the prior decade are the anomaly, not the norm. Throughout history, and you've had some guests on, I think that have this view, is like Jim Bianco. Mm -hmm, And, you know, basically saying... Throughout history of the U.S. economy, we had uh, higher rates. You know, rates at these levels were not problematic at all. 4% percent 10 year yield was never problematic for the economy. For the 90s, the 2000s, you know, it really wasn't. uh, You know, obviously, the, the GFC was an anomalous event. Maybe that was the anomaly, not the norm. And I think if we misjudge this and say we are back at 2019... That's what leads to the thinking that the neutral rate is much lower. That's what leads to thinking that we're very restrictive. That sort of myopic thinking, without looking at how the economy itself is telling us rates are not restrictive, is why I think they need to study demographics. Demographics are not the only story, but it's a story why we seem to be handling higher rates better than everyone thought we could.
0: Yeah, I think there's also a duration component where in the U.S. the amount of refinancing was so immense in 2020 and 2021 Absolutely. for the household and corporate sector that you know the losses have been borne by people who owned the debt, not people who owed the debt, that's uh, right. and that's not true in in Europe or Canada or other places.
1: That's yeah. right. Net yeah. interest payments for the corporate sector are they've just gone straight down. They're not only have they termed out their debt at very low levels. But the companies that are flush with cash, you know, the mega tech, mega tech companies, these are PL generating machines. They're cash flow generating machines, and they don't need all that cash. They don't have any debt to service, really, very little. And they're actually able to earn interest on that cash. So here's a change where it's actually benefiting some of the big economic agents in the economy, you know, the wealthier the wealthier cohorts in the economy, they have too much cash. They it's not they don't have a shortage of cash. They don't know what to do with it half the time. And so they're in, able to earn interest income. So household interest payments as a percentage of disposable income. They're very, very low levels. They have risen in the last year or so, and it's something to watch, but they're below levels we had for decades. Corporate sector is well below, even as they're starting to refinance. Let's see if that you know, slowly changes things. So, so far, when you take these cyclical elements with the structural demographic elements, it tells me we are not restrictive. And that's why I think, you know, frankly, they just should not cut rates anytime soon.
0: It makes a compelling case, uh, Danny. Thanks for sharing your view. It, it makes a lot of sense to me. Of course, you know, next time I interview someone who thinks there's going to be a recession, that, that's also going to make sense to me. Uh, but, uh, you yeah, know, yeah, I'm, I'm easily convinced. What are some uh, other trades you like? You say so you like you know being long convexity, long volatility on, on equity markets, and you like being short fixed income. What other trades do you have sort of in your hopper?
1: Something I don't have in I'm thinking is the Canada situation where you know there's high household debt, and the the challenge here is trying to buy bonds in Canada when they're so correlated to what happens in the U.S. You know bonds are. But the fundamentals of the economy suggest to me that they should have much more cuts than the U.S. And so on big dips, which I still think we're at too low yields to think about this, but if the 10-year in the U.S. got to four and a half, where I would buy is you know some Canada. You know, I look at the, Euro, at the Eurozone, and you clearly could see that policy is restrictive there. They've had no growth in a year. Their main growth engine is export channel. of the inflation by their own research, the UCB's research, came from the energy crisis supply side. So they need to stimulate exports. And the way to do that is for the euro to weaken substantially. So I actually think they should be more focused on the euro than on any given interest rate level per se. They need the euro to weaken so that you can stimulate the export engine because here and now... They're really not able to stimulate the export engine. And part of that is China's weak and that's their biggest customer, you know, and they need to find a way to make their, their exports more attractive to the Chinese customers. And, and the easiest way is to weaken their currency. So I look at short the Euro now, you know, I'm not saying I hold this forever, but you know, I've, I've already put on trades when we were at 110. Those were like 3, 4X. I was happy to monetize them, roll them down to lower strikes. Are those
0: options? You, you call options on the dollar so there's a volatility positions.
1: Yeah, and, and you get an advantage in currencies in that in forward space, the further out you can go, the forward is actually the euro is even higher than spot. So if the euro was at 110, the three-month forward was closer to 111. And so buying you know, trades at 108 strike was really cheap. Because, because
0: U.S. rates are higher than European rates. That's right. The rates differentials.
1: That is, you know, it's less appealing here, but I still think they need to get the euro closer to parity in order to really stimulate their economy. So that's probably going to mean cutting rates more aggressively than the U.S. in relative terms. And they probably have to cut. I would say they have the green light to cut any time. They shouldn't be waiting. Because, you know, if growth is as weak as it is, inflation will follow that. And it looks like it is. And so that's where, as you can see, my view is not, you know, static. All rates in the whole world need to be higher. Every economy has their own circumstance. Um, I'm very closely following Sweden. So my macro process is I'm an accumulator of as much information as possible. And not all of it gets into my portfolio. You know, um, a lot of it can be in my you know, brain and my back pocket for when it's interesting or when there's an opportunity. But the reason I'm following Sweden is they are a good barometer for the manufacturing cycle. And if the manufacturing cycle picks up the deflationary impulse for the global economy that we've seen in the last six months in particular might be coming to an end. So Sweden is an economy to study closely, even if you don't you know, trade their equity market or the bond market. And then last but not least, China is uninvestable. I okay. think everyone everyone tries to time this bottom. If you went back to the 90s and tried to time, you know, Japanese, you know, the Nikkei 225 bottoms, you would have been the most frustrated person. You may have got a few of them that bounced 30, 50%, but if you did you probably would have lost along the way. You can certainly buy call options if you want to, but my opinion is based on their policy set and their bad demographics and their balance sheet recession, I would just stay away. If you can do anything as an institutional investor, I would bet on Chinese uh, bond yields going to zero and staying there for a very long time.
0: That would be what I would do. Would that be possible with the currency stake where it is? Or would that foment a, a weakening of the renminbi? You know, in other words, if you think the European economy is so weak, the euro needs to weaken, what about the Chinese yuan? Which is the same as the renminbi. They need it to weaken. They seriously
1: need it to weaken but they're terrified of letting it weaken. And so in a way that they're creating bad policy, like they're conducting bad policy and that's a deflationary impulse that they could easily allow inflation to pick up by weakening their currency. I, I think what it comes down to is controversial in terms of their policy set is they're very concerned about an inflationary wave in China because that could have social unrest for that economy where you know it's a very poor country on a per capita GDP basis, even though their GDP as a whole is very large. It's a very poor country and inflation is very bad for lower income, brackets, right? It, as we've seen in our part of the world as well. So they're very worried about social unrest. I think that's their biggest concern is control rather than improving the economy, making it more open. But they should allow their currency to weaken. I'm not necessarily saying buy dollar CNH calls because. Mm-hmm. They, 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 they do what they do, and you're at mercy. If they want to manipulate the currency, they will. They're also concerned about outflows because they don't have a good way to incentivize those to come back, right? So you know, in the US, if money left the country to go invest in European stocks, and then the US economy improved, that money will come back. You know, th- that's the open nature of the US economy and Europe, and Canada, and and Japan, and all these countries. In China, they're really concerned that money leaves never comes back. And part of it might be people want to have their money elsewhere to avoid the control of the government. And so they have this difficult set of circumstances that they don't want to let go. And I understand not letting it go is like a Band-Aid coming off because it could be very messy if they do, but they have to let go if their economy's ever going to get out of it otherwise they'll have multi-decade japan style situation there's not they're not perfectly parallel to each other but you know the housing bust is not as bad as japan's the equity bust isn't as bad as japan's but at the same time japan was a far wealthier country than china is so again you know i would say um, avoid it avoid that situation learn lessons from from the past
0: very interesting, yeah, not, not an original thought of mine, what I'm about to say uh, said from a, by a recent guest, but the scale, maybe in price terms of the real estate is not as bad as Japan yet, but in terms yeah. of volume, like there's you know there's not twenty five huge Japanese cities where no one lives in there in them. That's right, so
1: if you actually look at the the China situation over the last three years, housing you know housing completions are down like fifty percent, and so you have these developers
0: that are clearly distressed. And some are going bankrupt. And some of them, like their their Evergrand, their their bonds are trading at one penny, which is, you know, for our viewers, not a high amount.
1: That's effectively bankrupt.
0: And there are many others that are distressed,
1: you know, 20, 30 cents a dollar. And you have this huge unsold inventory of you know houses that are hanging over the market, which makes you think there's more to go in downside. And and then yet somehow there have not been a single bank fail. And none of the banks have reported loans, loan impairments, right? So one of the beautiful things about the US economy is when bad things happen, we recognize it right away, right? And, and so if, if commercial real estate is, is really bad, which frankly, it depends on how much has been provisioned for it, loan loss reserves, but let's just say it's worse than expected. It'll behoove the banks to recognize these losses as soon as possible, mark them down, because then you can grow. Then you can, yeah, you can move on. Then you can grow. It sucks for your stock price to go down 50%. But the sooner you do it, the sooner you can grow. When you hold on to these, you know, deny the problem and paper over the problem and don't recognize the problem, what happens is you don't grow. You can't grow out of it. And so that's the problem with the, the control system of China right now. You know, I, I think they've been talking about opening up. They need to work towards doing that
0: thanks Danny Uh been a pleasure uh, chatting with you hearing hearing your views so people can find you on Twitter at uh, Danny Diane five so you're on Twitter you're being interviewed you' you're trading in your in your account what's uh you is that kind of your plan or what's what's you know you got what's what's cooking
1: I have a number of things cooking unfortunately I can't talk about all of them um, as enough. much as I enjoy trading my own money I do have a, a yearning to get back into the institutional side and there's a variety of different ways this might play out. So we'll see there. I've also been considering, uh, I'm someone who in my personal life have completely moved away from social media. Uh, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of it at all, but you know, last year I joined Twitter and started to see some really smart people on there putting content out regularly. I just kind of threw my thoughts out there and slowly people have started to appreciate that. And so I'm thinking of ways that I can further that engagement Given that I trade complex option structures, I have to do this in a responsible way that put out a trade. And if I don't inform everyone on a timely basis, you know, take it off, uh, I don't want the responsibility that they may have lost money, you know. So I have to think about how to do this in a responsible way. But, uh, you know, we'll figure that out. It's coming Figure that
0: out. Well, Danny, it was great to meet you. Look forward to staying in touch. And uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks, everyone, for watching. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for watching. Remember to check out VanEck.com slash HODLFG to learn more about the VanEck Bitcoin Trust, ticker HODL. A reminder that Forward Guidance episodes are available on all podcast apps and on Twitter, where I post them regularly at JackFarley96. Thanks again. Until next time.